School of Economics. And here with us is Timofey Milovanov, president of the Kiev School of Economics. And we are delighted to host an outstanding guest, Dr. Fiona Hill. So Dr. Fiona Hill is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. As a nonpartisan foreign policy expert, she served as an intelligence analyst under George W. Bush and Barack Obama. She was promoted to senior director for European and Russian affairs under President Trump's on his National Security Council. And since her early career as a scholar and as a practitioner, Dr. Hill has studied Russia. She authored several notable books. I personally loved Mr. Putin. And those books, they contain a wealth of information on Russia, Russian economy, and Russia's ruler. Only her latest book was a kind of a departure from all things Russian, being a poignant autobiography and a critical analysis of the US political history. So Dr. Hill, once again, thank you for finding time in our busy schedule for this discussion. We definitely need some nonpartisan expertise to understand how we got here and how to get out of here. No, well, thank you very much, Yvonne. It's really great to be here. Um, I can't actually see everybody. I've tried to put it on a grid. I can only really see you, everybody else. I've got their name. So I hope that, um, and you've got participants on as well. So everyone can hear okay, is that correct? Everything is perfect. Uh, people are in the attendee lobby. So they are like watching us, but they Okay, can good. So they can hear, yes. Because I'm, I mean, I'm really um, full of admiration for what you're trying to do in the middle of just the most horrific circumstances. So I just want to make sure that this is as useful for everyone, you know, given um, all of the things you're trying to deal with. Um, I wanted to make this as much of a discussion as possible, because I also wanted to tell you, I just came back late last night from the United Kingdom, where I had a lot of discussions with people in the um, British government as well as in think tanks uh, and others about the situation in Ukraine as well. So, I mean, you know, maybe I'll have some observations that could be useful for anyone who's listening. And of course, I saw quite a number of people who just returned from the World Bank and IMF meetings in Washington, DC. I wasn't here for those, obviously talking about the future of reconstruction, the future of the Ukrainian economy and how to help. And I think it'd be very interesting given, um, I mean, I guess pretty much everybody on here is still in Ukraine, correct? Yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, to hear from you as well, some of your thoughts, because obviously a lot of people are making decisions and having discussions from the outside. And, um, you know, we, I want to make sure that everything is completely latched up with those of you who are there and trying to deal with everything on a daily basis. As it is said now in Ukraine, Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. That is like exactly. a kind of an official position right now. Yeah, but I want to actually assure you that every conversation that I was in was like everybody kept stressing that, that it's really at the direction of Ukraine, particularly about how things go next. Of course, there are some limitations on some of the you know, requests from the uh, Ukrainian government, as we know. But I think in terms of the longer uh, perspective here, there's very much a, a desire to be guided by you know, what, people inside Ukraine uh, would like to see. And we really appreciate it. Uh, would it be comfortable for you if I ask you questions and then yes. we answer in the discussion? Very well. Yeah, that's what I would really like to do because, you know, again, I mean, you have a lot going on and I don't want to talk at you because you more than anyone, I mean, all of you who are participating in this know what's happening on the ground. I mean, my role in these meetings um, in the United Kingdom, as well as things I've been doing here, 
is kind of like public diplomacy, trying to explain to people who don't have as much knowledge um, about the situation with Russia. Why did Putin decide to do this? You know, what's happening, you know, in a larger context? How does this fit into a larger frame? Just to try to give them as straightforward an explanation as I possibly can. But I don't think you need that kind of explanation for this group here. So I'd be much um, more interested in what your specific questions are and, you know, how could I help to frame, you know, maybe some different um, issues for, for everyone um, who's here at the uh, Kiev School. Okay. Okay, so and again, I just want to say you're my heroes for keeping on doing this, heroes and heroines, because this is really, uh, I, I think it's amazing what you're trying to do to keep everything going. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's start exactly with the, the field of expertise with Mr. Putin. In your superb treatment of Putin's numerous public persona, you made two crucial observations. First, you explained that being a statist, a survivalist, a case officer, a free marketeer, a history man, and an outsider simultaneously, Putin is the master of public presentation. So in other words, he has a repertoire of behaviors to choose from the best to impact the audience he's currently dealing with. And second, you observed that although no one knows for sure which of those personas is his anchoring personality, uh, he can maintain each of them, all of them in relative harmony. And here are two my questions which are actually interrelated. So first, after Putin decided to declare war on Ukraine and a proxy war on the West, is there still harmony among the six Putin's personas? And second, is the 70 years old man hiding somewhere in a bunker still a master of public presentations? These are really great questions, Ivan. And, you know, I think that um, obviously, as we all know, absolute power corrupts and the longer time you're in office, the more dangerous it becomes for yourself and your own perceptions and analysis of events, not just for everyone else around and everyone who's concerned when somebody like Putin makes a decision. I mean, let's sort of start with this decision, as you said, to invade Ukraine. It was made by Putin and perhaps a couple of other people, perhaps Sergei Shoigu, uh, the defense minister. And now and in that regard, it's also important to bear in mind who Shoigu is, and I'll get back to that. Perhaps also Mr. Botnikov from the Federal um, um, Intelligence Services, the FSB. Maybe Mr. Patrushev from uh, the Security Council. It doesn't look like it was Mr. Narishkin um, from the uh, foreign intelligence, if we look at those videos very carefully, just before the war, he looks confused and a little surprised. And we've seen, you know, the way that Putin has positioned himself at a table that I'm trying to get, I can't get as far back from you as he is, which shows that he's putting himself deliberately in what I would call splendid isolation to emphasize that he's the czar, he's the autocrat, he's the person in charge and charge and no one can come close to him. It's not just because he's frightened of catching COVID or being assassinated uh, or, you know, basically, I think he thinks getting back to that idea of public presentation, that that was a presentation of strength, but it's emphasizing that he made that decision and that everybody else has basically gone along with that. And this gets to, you know, all the different parts of your question here, particularly the second one about, you know, how much can somebody still be the master of that? 
It's very clear that over the two years or more that we've all been in lockdown, him included, he's become further and further away. That's a metaphorical distance, but a real physical distance from anyone else who would bring him advice. Now, I know from my experience in the United States government, where I was technically an advisor to Donald Trump, I was anything but because he did not want to hear from me at all. <laughs> Very different from other presidents that I have advised. He thought I was just, you know, middle-aged woman who knew nothing. So what? I've written a book about Putin. What could I possibly know? I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a president. I'm not a queen. Uh, you know, for Trump, it's all about who you are, not what you know. And for Putin, he believes or has believed up until now in many respects that you know, he's in complete charge, as you said, of all of the information that he t needs to know because he's an intelligence officer. He's somebody who doesn't so much take the analysis of the equivalence of me, but as somebody who takes the raw intelligence, the information, and figures it out himself. And during this whole period of not so splendid isolation, I think it's been very difficult to see that the people who would have a good assessment of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine that could have basically said to him, this will be a big mistake, did not get close to him, not just physically, but perhaps didn't even get to get the information up to him. Now, we, we know that Putin within the Kremlin has a whole division that do written reports for him. I mean, I think contrary to Donald Trump, he actually reads. But, you know, how are people shit presenting that information because you know they, they don't want to do something that's unpopular look and even myself when i've thought well i've got my five ten minutes here with this person to advise them you have to carefully select what you're going to tell them because you have so little time and often opportunity because they might interrupt you and then the discussion might go in a different way and if you're not important enough in the hierarchy you won't get the chance to go excuse me excuse me stop no <laughs> i need to tell you something important so you think about that in the context of the Kremlin and Putin, and you realize he hasn't got all the information that he needs. And even if he did, the frame of his reference might not be sufficient to make a decision. So he's made this decision to invade Ukraine on the basis of what he knows. Now, we also know, going back many years, and this is one of the personas that um, I and my colleague Clifford Gaddy wrote about in that book, Mr. Putin Operative in the Kremlin that you referenced, that Putin is obsessed with history. Mm -hmm. We've heard from Peskov, um, his um, press advisor who helps him with the presentation along with Gromov and other people there in the Kremlin, that Putin reads, he says, all the time, but he reads Russian history. He's not mm -hmm. reading Ukrainian history or world history or European history, he's reading history from a Russian perspective, you know, perhaps starting with Lamanosov and others, but it's very much Russian imperial history and history from the perspective of Moscow looking out at the rest of the world. So Putin has obviously missed quite a lot of the larger, more relevant history. Now I've talked recently in the United Kingdom when I was giving talks about my experience in sitting in that huge office of his with the big white table and the parquet floor on a number of meetings i've got a picture of myself in here i'm going to show you so there's a picture of mm -hmm. me and others at that table and you can and the reason i'm picking it up here is you can see that there's a statue here and i counted four statues in the time that i was there and the statues are very revealing for who 
you know, Putin might think he is at this point, because I think he's become too much of the history man, putting all of the other things out of balance. Mm -hmm. But the history man with the statist idea that he and the Russian state are all together, and then using the KGB operatives uh, tactics of ruthlessness and brutality. There's no paintings in this room. It's all, you know, the white, the parquet floor and the thing. And there's the four statues. And it might have moved them around, but the four statues that I saw in there, um, you know, one of them, which I think is this one um, here, is um, uh, Alexander I, the great liberator of the serfs. Uh, and of course, the Tsar who pushed uh, the second, sorry, the uh, Tsar who pushed um, um, Napoleon, I mean, basically out of, uh, out of um, you know, kind of basically Moscow all the way to um, back to Paris. But the other three statues are much more relevant for Ukraine. One of them is Peter the Great, who, of course, establishes Russia and the empire in the mythologizing of Putin and others with the Battle of Poltava in Ukrainian territory in 1709. The and, and, of course, creates the first Black Sea fleet in the Sea of Azov and Taganrog. And um, you know, basically, we see now with the focus of the battles where Putin's attention is. The third is Catherine the Great, annexer of Crimea, princess, you know, of, uh, of Germany, of Anhalt Zerbst, uh, you know, great empress. So he's not, you know, just being completely, you know, sexist, misogynistic here, but, you know, it's also Kazan Great, of course, who creates Novi Rasia and the yeah. Potemkin villages and the whole kind of superficial sense that Russia has now controlled the lands um, of uh, Ukraine, of modern Ukraine that cover Crimea and the whole area down to Odessa and the Black Sea uh, coast, as well as Azov creator of Odessa with the Count of Richelieu. I mean, you can just see all of the mythologizing here. And then the fourth statue, which was very interesting to me, is Nicholas I. Now, I think that he's there because of official nationality, mm -hmm. because of the creation of that sort of sense of what is the essence of the um, Russian autocracy, the, the empire, the system, um, you know, pravoslavnost, avtokratia, and narodnost. But I immediately thought of Nicholas I from the Crimean War. And in the United Kingdom, there are lots of statues to the Crimean War because Nicholas I miscalculated. Nicholas I thought that he had been given the green light to expand Russia's influence um, around the Black Sea, including, you know, among the Christian populations of the Ottoman Empire, and also thought that he might be able to get control of the Bosphorus Straits. Now we went too far, didn't he? And he got a backlash from all of his other European counterparts, including his distant cousins, because you know he, he was writing letters backwards and forwards, Austro-Hungary, Germany, Great mm -hmm. Britain, and France. So they weren't related, but anyway, I mean, the, the rest of the potentates of Europe were, and he really thought that this was not going to be um, rebuffed or responded to in any way. And he lost the war, he lost the Crimean war. Now, everybody else didn't fare too well either. This is a devastating war. And in the United Kingdom, you know, you have the charge of the Light Brigade, one of the exactly. greatest, <laughs> terrible, you know, kind of moments in a battle in any context. It became, it became a beautiful poem by Lord Tennyson, but it was an absolute disaster. Uh, we got the Battle of Balaclava that gave us the Balaclava, you know, to kind of wear as a big hat when it's cold. But we got Florence Nightingale and public health and uh, the nursing profession out of it in the UK. Nicholas I got nothing very much, but he did manage to maintain Crimea, but he got defeated. And I think that this gets back to, you know, what you, how you started here. 
I don't think, you know, first of all, Putin hasn't calculated things especially well. He's become obsessed with his version of mm -hmm. Russian history. Mm -hmm. His image making public presentation of how he sees himself and how he presents himself, even in these, you know, large rooms, which are the ultimate public presentation. They're the public facing part of the Kremlin, the place that you invite people into. He's met with Gutierrez in there recently. He's met with Macron. And I mean, I don't know whether he swaps the statues around, but this it's that whole iconography, the whole image that he's trying to present of him and the state. Him sitting there with those statues is saying, I am the same as these are. And what he's been basically saying about Ukraine is Ukraine is little Russia. Ukraine is part of new Russia, Novorossiya. Ukraine belongs to Russia. Not realizing or understanding at all that Ukrainians are not Russian that Ukrainians are citizens of their own country, they don't want to be part of Russia, you don't want to be part of Russia, are not fully understanding how this is going to play out. Because there's another element that's very important here about Putin and Shoigu, and I mentioned Botnikov and uh, people here too, they're not military strategists, they're operators. Shoigu mm -hmm. may be the defence minister, but he's not a general. He came out of the emergency ministry. I mean, now that they've put generals in charge who weren't obviously consulted at the beginning, I mean, we're seeing you know, different things emerging. But Putin is absolutely not a military strategist. He's an operative, he's a uh, contingency planner. He's constantly changing and adapting what he's doing, which is why it's so dangerous. Mm -hmm. and, and as I said, with, with all of the other pers uh, parts of his personality out of kilter now, out of whack, out of balance, because he fixated on this history man, the status, his idea of him being the state and the Russian state, and embarks on, something not very different from nicholas uh from uh, nicholas the first he's got himself and or everyone into an absolutely terrible predicament well that was a beautiful entrance into russian history and also several parallels occurred to me to begin with nicholas the first was an unfortunate autocrat who managed to put against himself ottoman porta and british empire and france who used all to at be once. Yeah. all at once just what putin has just done you know uh, you 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 have different uh, members of international community who are visibly enraged with his behavior and here actually i have another question i think it, it really dovetails to what you are talking us about the question is about and i i don't know you might disagree with me but i think that putin is both prone to and proud of unilateralism Yes. He despises alliances. He despises international agreements. And given the fact that he defined the Russian policy for 20 years, was his unilateralism effective? If, if my reading is correct, that he loves unilateralism. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you, Ivan. And then I think what's interesting is how that seemed to change just before the um, invasion on one very important axis with China. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Russia and Putin has always said that Russia doesn't have any allies apart from its own military and, you know, and its navy. Uh, he would also, I would say that he, he thinks of himself as coming from the KGB as being the sword and the shield. Those are, you know, those images of the state. And so, you know, the only alliances are the security services and the, um, and, and the military. Yeah. And yet, to do what he did, he did need to have at least one very key important country in his corner and that was china now as you well know 
China was the largest single country investor in Ukraine before the war. Um, And also, um, Russia has been concerned for some time, despite the strategic partnership with China, about, you know, the longer term security consequences of having the world's longest border or the the longest border of Russia with China. It's not with NATO. I mean, as we well know, even during the Soviet period, the only European country with a direct border with the Russian Federation during the Soviet period in NATO was Norway. Because, um, I mean, one with Russia Federation, that is, because I mean, with the Baltic states, obviously there was Poland uh, because of, you know, the, um, with Kaliningrad and um, this is Soviet period, but only Norway has ever consistently had as a NATO member, uh, a border uh, with Russia, although that would change with uh, Finland uh, coming on as well. Because Turkey, which is the biggest of those borders with the Caucasus, with the Caucasus, um, so all of Russia's borders as a Russian Federation have been with you know, Kazakhstan, Mongolia and China. Those are the biggest borders, not NATO at all. Uh, and then the disputed border with Ch- Japan. So you've got to be worried about China over the longer term, even if you, know, you think that this relationship is good now, the history, uh, of the relationship with the clashes across the Amur River would give you pause. Yeah. So Putin essentially, um, despite this unilateral approach to things, and China's very similar too, has to court the favour of President Xi, as we saw at the Beijing Olympics. They signed this agreement. I was quite shocked by that agreement, actually, about how far it went on the Chinese side, talking about a partnership without limits, having President Xi push back against the idea of NATO, and then essentially she has said to Putin, you don't have to worry about us. You can move your forces or many of your forces and equipment from the Russian Far East, from, you know, they are more the Far East region to Belarus and Ukraine. So, you know, China um, has in many respects aided and abetted this, despite the fact that China always um, maintains it's in favor of territorial integrity and sovereignty and independence has been in the past supportive of Ukraine says it has nothing against Ukraine. But I also suggest, getting back to the first set of questions that you posed, that China thought that Putin was only gonna go in and go out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is you know, an important element. There's a lot of people who know Russia really well, including Russians themselves, who think that Putin thought that what he was doing in Ukraine was similar to what the Soviet Union did in Hungary in 1956, in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and then to some extent in Poland in the 1980s, when General Jaruzelski declared martial law to stop a Soviet um, invasion, that he thought that it, would, it was just basically like a policing operation. Again, mm-hmm. the way that they brought in Roskvadia, uh, thinking that, you know, obviously um, Ukraine would capitulate quickly, maybe like Hungary and Czechoslovakia with, with some fighting, but not much. And clearly um, China and she think the same thing. And so, you know, they go, that they, they goes from like Russia and Putin always being obsessed with the unilateralism now to this bizarre, um, you know, in my view, anyway, um, shift just on the eve of the conflict. A little like when Austro-Hungary and, you know, Japan and others, you know, end up finding themselves in Italy as part of the Axis powers for different reasons, because China, again, I, this is why I think this has global dimensions, because China had other interests, it wasn't Ukraine, so it isn't Europe really, apart from political and economic influence in, in, in Europe. But it is about the whole Asia Pacific. The fact they've got AUKUS, the um, American, you know, um, of course the French aren't happy with this either, UK and Australian submarine deal. 
but also the fact that the United Kingdom and France have these big um, expeditionary naval forces. I mean, not that big, but you know, comparatively speaking, and as, and they're also members of NATO. But you know, China thinking that whatever Russia does in Europe will benefit China's position, strengthen its hand in the Asia Pacific. I mean, we saw that you know in World War Two as well, uh, with powers that you wouldn't think would have common cause, like Japan and Germany banding together. And now we've seen that, you know, here, a unilateral perspective of, of, of Putin, absolutely, as you said, always unilateral, always thinking of this from his own perspective, but suddenly making common cause with a similar power elsewhere. And, and I think, you know, really complicating and expanding uh, the, the war and the conflict as, as a result. I don't know what you think about that, but I mean, I was personally somewhat shocked. I mean, partly on the Chinese side, thinking, why would they do this? I mean, I can see why they would do it, but I still think, why would they do this? Well, I remember those several presentations by Putin and Xi Jinping, where they're like sitting like real poles, drinking either some Chinese spirits or Russian vodka. And actually there was this piece of information that actually only this Xi Jinping Putin never uses his own cook because with Xi Jinping, he is eager to drink and eat whatever his host team presents with. So what I'm trying to say is that, yes, I do agree that Xi Jinping and his ideas and his personality are really appealing to Putin and strategically they actually go hand in hand because those are two revisionist powers. I mean, yes. both China and Russia, the Russian Federation, they are like the enemies uh, of the liberal world order, yeah, the American century, they want actually to finish it and to finish it for different reasons, but they want to do it. And that is why their each owns unilateralism made them, let's say, strange bedfellows. I really mean strange because don't that's, that's really good. That's a really good, that's a really good observation. I mean, I think, you know, historians will be writing about this for a long time to come. I also do think that, I mean, on a political uh, sense, I mean, I, I, I've been a, you know, whenever I can, suggesting this, that I think that, you know, the Ukrainian government really needs to have some pretty aggressive outreach to China. Because as China was such a major investor in Ukraine beforehand, I mean, I, th I don't think that China's calculation, you know, was necessarily based on this particular outcome. Yeah. And, and when you also think, I, I mean, I don't necessarily want to create more friction with Japan, especially for Ukraine, but the occupation of China by Japan in the run-up to World War II and during World War II and the rape of Nanjing. I mean, China ought to be reminded of this, that their whole expansionist policies over the last several decades has been predicated based on the fact that they were the victims of predation by European colonial powers, including Russia in the 19th century. Yeah. Ukraine had nothing to do with it. Ukraine's a colony. Yeah. Yeah. And Ukraine is getting treated today and was treated in the Soviet period and, you know, parts of the imperial period and just the way that China complains about having been treated by European powers and later by Japan. Yeah. And on the other hand, just to compound all those historical perspectives, one should not forget that there were border clashes first between Thin Empire and uh, the Romanov Empire and it yes. was in the 17th century. So it right. is not a peaceful co coexistence. And then nobody should forget that the Maoist China and Soviet Union were like the frenemies uh, on the global scale. 
absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, I think that, you know, from the Ukrainian perspective, the government and, you know, envoys need to make something of this, you know, to, to basically say, look, you know, we don't understand why you're taking this position. Because I don't think this helps at all China's position with Taiwan, nor mm -hmm. China's um, largest strategic position in the region. I mean, another way in which I think Putin is hurting um, China's position, I mean, you haven't asked this question yet, but is in the way that he's behaving on the nuclear front. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just with what, um, excuse me, has been done already with um, Chernobyl and the exclusion zone and firing on Zaporizhia and all these great risks uh, to civilian uh, nuclear um, power. I mean, China's interested in that as well. And what Russia was doing here is utterly irresponsible, but also the threats to use a nuclear weapon because that then underscores, and this is what I've been saying a lot in the UK, that Ukraine should never have given up strategic nuclear weapons and the yeah. strategic nuclear arsenal in the 1990s. I actually wrote about that when I was much younger, scholar in 1993, 94, I got into big trouble with a colleague. We wrote a report called Back in the USSR, where we kind of said, well, you know, maybe Ukraine shouldn't give up the strategic um, arsenal because you know, it's likely to get a lot of pressure from Russia, which it was already getting in the early 90s. And the Budapest memorandum came out of that uh, to try to give assurances, which obviously didn't work and were not at all helpful. And so if every power in any region is looking at what's happening now in Ukraine, you would say, I need a nuclear weapon. If you want yeah. to put pressure on your neighbor, you want nuclear weapon because people won't push back on you as much. They'll restrain themselves like we are, you know, with uh, with Russia, because we're worried that they'll put off set off a nuclear weapon. And you want to have a nuclear weapon for defense, because, of course, we you know we see with uh, India and Pakistan and, you know, usually with other nuclear powers that that creates um, a certain caution uh, in um, uh, an engagement and particularly in, in military terms. I mean, India and Pakistan have pulled back, you know, many times from the brink. And that's kind of in a way why Putin is being able to say this is now a proxy war with the, the US which um, and the West, which of course it isn't because we don't have territorial designs on Ukraine. But it's because of this whole idea of nuclear powers, you know, basically going at each other at the top and, and, and a war being conducted in a place where there's not likely to be a great power nuclear exchange. But here's Putin actually threatening to use a nuclear power battlefield, one assumes. But, you know, he's also talked about Iskanders. And we know that there are nuclear scandals in Kaliningrad. I mean, he's raising this whole issue of it. And as a result, he's completely undermining the strategic nuclear balance on a global scale. Now, Kim Jong-un and North Korea did that to China before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know from my time in government that the Chinese were deeply disturbed by what North Korea did with you know, the missile test going back to 2017, because it meant suddenly that everybody started getting involved in the Asia Pacific. And it altered the balance uh, among and between China and South Korea and Japan as well, and brought the United States in far more than it had before. And Russia didn't really have a player role there. And so Russia's now done the same thing everywhere, because if you're Japan and South Korea looking at this, and you've also got Kim Jong-un and North Korea to contend with, you think, well, hang on, can we rely on the United States nuclear umbrella? Maybe we should be contemplating our own nuclear status. We know that Saudi Arabia and Turkey and many other countries have contemplated um, having their own nuclear program in the past. That's one of the reasons why we've been so 
assertive on Iran on trying to get them to step back from their nuclear weapons program. And, you know, we saw what happened with Libya when Gaddafi gave his up. So I, I think that what Putin has done now is completely destroy the non-proliferation uh, regime, the non-proliferation treaty regime. And that's yeah. something else, Ukraine, Belarus, you know, Kazakhstan. I don't think Belarus is going to be so helpful to you. You know, I don't know about Kazakhstan, but I mean, you have been, you know, already the countries that actually adhered to the whole idea of non-proliferation. Yeah. And I mean, that, that taking about public presentation and how you present yourselves in your case, that's a very important point to make. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go further, because although it is almost impossible to think about Russia without thinking of a man who ruled it for 20 years, let's discuss some structural foundations of the Russian political economy. In the Siberian curse, you informed your readers that due to the communist misallocation, Russia has a non-market distribution of labor and capital. And you stipulated that, I quote, Russia will not be able to build a competitive market economy and a normal democratic society on this basis. And I think you will agree this prophecy. I was going to say, I think that's exceptionally well. <laughs> exceptionally well. So it, 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 it was written almost 20 years ago. I, like you know, I, did, I did for a moment think that I was wrong when I started looking at some of the digital <laughs> developments and because I hadn't, you know, when when Cliff and I wrote that book, we, we didn't have the full, you know, 2000 census. Uh, and so, you know, we didn't have a lot of the information. And then, of course, was this huge proliferation, not just of mobile phones, but of, you know, kind of digital connectivity, development of software. And I thought, uh, yeah, we didn't factor that in so much. But now I think, well, you know, that actually didn't change things all that much. Exactly, exactly. So it, it is actually a, a perfect illustration of a good analysis and a good prophecy. But could you please explain me and our audience? So was the clash with the liberal West preordained by the Russian econo economic geography? And if not, why have we ended here? I mean, in that clash? Mm. I mean, that's a good um, that's a good point, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of people who would say that it is. I mean, those, you know, political geographers, economic geographers, um, you know, would actually, um, you know, say that, yes, it was ordained because, you know, Russia was permanently a semi-periphery or periphery state in a, in a big world system. And it's definitely a state, you know, in that, that produces conflict. Yes, I mean, I think you can make a, a case in that point, but I'm not sure that it really was preordained. I mean, I think partly, it comes down again to this, well, there's the political cultural structure also of, I mean, a country that's, uh, you know, I would see predisposed to autocracy and then to not having systems and, you know, the balances and checks and balances there. I do think that what the Soviets did during the Cold War in building up from the 70s onwards, these big cities did produce that kind of problem. And look, I came back from the United Kingdom and my recent book looks at the parallels mm -hmm. among and between the United Kingdom's now peripheral areas where I come from in the Northeast that were built up, you know, heavy industrial times at exactly the same time as the Soviet Union's. My home area of County Durham is linked with the Donbass and has been since the 1880s and 1890s when the same sets of industrialists came in to build up the um, iron and you know steel and coal uh, industries in Donbass region and Kuzbass and other places, as well as in the northeast of England. You get the same sort of sets of German and American and Belgian and other industrialists, you know, Welshmen and, you know, with like in Donbass with um, 
Mr. Hughes and Hughes of Skir and things. And then in the 1920s, delegations of miners from my um, home region came to Donbass to sort of see the new Soviet um, show mines and you know the gleaming, sparkling mines of uh, of Donbass in the 20s. So there's there's a lot of um, parallels also with the big industrial manufacturing and coal mining and steel making areas of the United States as well that were built up in that same 1880s, 1890s, 1900s period were very fast growing and then all declined in a similar period because they weren't economically competitive with the new economy. And some of those regions like the northeast of England are kind of peripheral, but with small distances. Mm -hmm. As you know, we're saying already with Russia and the Soviet Union, this colossal scale, that periphery was vast in the whole country. The whole of the Soviet Union was somewhat peripheral from Western markets. Now, all of that kind of suggests there's a lot of structural um, underpinnings for everything that we see today. And you see in politics in the United States, you know, the, the old industrial areas of the United States being pitted against the areas of new industry on the east and west coast and, you know, the kind of Silicon Valleys and the old Rust Belt. I mean, the Rust Belt used to be the industrial heartland. And politically, that's having an awful lot of consequences. It's the roots of the polarization in the United States, just as it's also roots of polarization in the United Kingdom. And it's that kind of fact that, you know, most of the, a lot of the economy is out of kilter that's provided the base for Putin now. I do, however, think that some things might have changed things. Um, the rule of law becoming, you know, more, um, let's just say, more deeply rooted in Russia. And I think that's on the, United, on the United States and the West as well for, you know, coming in and thinking that, you know, with Jeffrey Sachs and everyone else, that you just change the system and immediately everything follows. I'm going to spend a lot of time working with Yuga Gaida and people around him. And again, I'm not an economist, I'm more of a historian and an economic historian. And Gaida saying quite openly, and he writes about that in his book about the Soviet collapse, that he assumed that when communism disappeared, you uh, embarked on privatisation, that a bourgeoisie, a middle class would emerge. And it didn't. And in fact, you got this huge difference between oligarchs the people who made it were able to take advantage of privatization and everybody else who got left behind if you've gone to the north of england you've just seen the same thing yeah. because most people worked there in national industry there was no entrepreneurial class there mm -hmm. were the big industrialists him and don bass who come in and everybody works for them they don't work for themselves apart from a few small shopkeepers uh, and you know people in a small amounts of trades so that's not enough to build a middle class and that really in, in Russia, there'd been more thinking about this. And you've seen a middle class emerge um, in Moscow and St. Petersburg and some of the big cities, but only because of the role of the state by people working in a bureaucracy. And most of the middle class in Russia starts to emerge out of the bureaucracy, the people working for the state, different in Ukraine and some other places. What I'm saying in this is we could have anticipated some of this at earlier stages you know, on the way to where we've become from the 90s onwards. There was a lot of misperception, wishful thinking, thinking about, you know, more of uh, the role of the Communist Party rather than the structure of the economy. Mm -hmm. Not enough of a comparison, too much thinking that Russia was sui generis or the Soviet Union was and that, you know, not understanding uh, the, the way that the economy had uh, developed. I mean, that was one of the reasons why Cliff and I wanted to you know, write about the Siberian curse. There wasn't enough um, attention paid to the rule of law and how you would create law around private property and interactions um, in business. 
But there was also the fact that nobody reacted in the early 1990s when Yeltsin decides to basically shell the Russian parliament, shell the Russian White House. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another thing where I think that there was a, a problem because we helped the presidency in Russia to entrench itself even more because that was a dispute over checks and balances in the system. Um, over the role of vice president and the role of uh, the parliament. And I think that all of those kinds of things, you know, on top of this, have, have helped to lead us to um, the where we are today. But I also do think that in this instance, leadership matters. So it's the person of Vladimir Putin. I know there's always a debate, and I've taken part in as well, about the, the big man factor, the great man factor, leadership in history. The weak, strong men. Exactly. But you often can see that individuals and their perspectives do make a difference. We saw Gorbachev was very different from the people who preceded him. Yeah. Even though he was a protege of Andropov, he wasn't an Andropov. Putin's a bit of a protege of Andropov and it's kind of like Andropov. <laughs> but Medvedev wasn't like Putin because of, you know, different things about his bio biography. Yeah, he was a lawyer. Uh, just his personal nature. Yeah, but he was a different kind of lawyer because Putin was a lawyer who never practiced. He was rule of law um, and rule by law. But he wasn't, you know, the kind of rule by law rather than rather rule of law. Where Medvedev actually practiced law, and you know, kind of actually, I think saw it more in a rule of law context. Mm -hmm. And again, wasn't in the KGB. Now I think that this is where, you know, some of the personal elements of Putin, the ruthlessness, lack of empathy. I mean, I, I've often thought to myself, how could the man whose own family survived the siege of Leningrad and who lost his own brother there do this? Well, because he thinks, well, so what? I had to, we had to suffer, so, so can you. No empathy at all. That kind of factor, Gorbachev had empathy. When Gorbachev initially, you know, back in the um, whole period of uh, the problems with the Baltic states and, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, when there were that, was those policing action pushing back against the protests and uprising, when people were killed in the Baltic states, he pulled back. He didn't want to see people killed. He had a totally different perspective on things. Putin doesn't care. So yeah. that, and, and the people around him don't care either. So that personal attribute, I mean, all that lack of attribute, right? That lack of empathy, that brutality, that ruthlessness, that has also brought us to where we are now as well. So I think there's no one satisfying answer to this, uh, but there are many different factors that have got us here. Along the way, I think there could have been pushing in some different direction. I mean, I put a lot of blame also on us in the West, not because of NATO and NATO expansion, although, you know, the way that Russia and Putin perceived NATO, we should have, you know, factored in more clearly, but also because we didn't push back at key moments. You know, like in, in Georgia in 2008, it wasn't just about Saakashvili, it was about, you know, kind of Russia's view of the world and Putin. We should have pushed back uh, with Litvinenko, with Skripal, you know, at every other point of um, after the annexation of Crimea, but going back even further at different junctures, like Yeltsin firing on the White House, Chechnya, we should have been much more assertive than we were. Yeah. I do agree. Often when I have to explain to my interlocutors the divergent trajectories of Russia and Ukraine, I start with the shelling of the White House, I mean the Russian White House. Because you see that it is... as well, yeah. I see that as just a disaster, you know, right at the very beginning for the whole future. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's continue with some explanations from the economical point of view, from the point of view of economic history. I, I don't know, once again, maybe you will disagree, but most economists, they would eagerly trade territorial expense for market integration. 
However, from Ivan the Terrible to Putin, Russian rulers, they seem to be obsessed with land acquisition. And it might be understandable in the medieval times when, you know, land is the primary source of production, hence wealth. But, and that is my question, why is Putin intent on grabbing lands all over the post-Soviet space, still having Siberia and Ural to tend for? After all, and that is kind of my extra question, paying for a land bridge to Crimea with banishment from the World Trade Organization, and not only organization, but the World Trade per se, is unwise. So why is this land grabbing? What for? Because I don't think it's got anything to do with economics or political economy. Um, I think it's got all to do about this myth-making that he's engaged in about the, you know, what is the roots of the great power status you know, of Russia. And the, you know, I, I wrote my dissertation actually about Russia's obsession with being a great power and a territorial extent, prastranstva. You know, I mean, it, it, it in itself is this obsession, as you said, since the medieval era, or at least, you know, Ivan Grozny and, you know, kind of building out and expanding out that people always explain it through, explain it through geopolitics, you know, Eurasianism, the vast landmass, you know, with no real geographic impediments. But I think it's also because, you know, when you start to think about the way that the Tsars describe themselves and the, the Tsarina, in the case of Catherine the Great, it says emperor or empresses of all Russias. And, you know, it's kind of all of these lands and then, you know, the titles go on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> mm -hmm. All the different things. The British Empire is the same. Starts with, you know, colonization of Ireland. Well, if you're England, you spread out in Scotland and um i on the plane but i was i wasn't completely working all the time on the plane and i watched mary queen of scots which i hadn't seen before um just because i thought it was kind of appropriate really for where we are now and it's this obsession you know kind of of monarchs of having their lands mm -hmm. and you know the the in, in mary queen of scots versus elizabeth the first elizabeth the first of course had this long correspondence with Ivan grozny by the way who wanted to marry her at one point which fascinating to me <laughs> but it's all about you know having that right to that rightful um claim to a throne but it's really about territory it's not about the people at all it's about the territory mm -hmm. and and even in then those discussions are not about what you will do with it it's not about the productivity of it but it's just that kind of sense of kind of wealth in the extent and expanse of land and when you look at the titles of um queen victoria and as you wander around london i mean there are statues to it all over you note again you know, this kind of list of lands, and not of not people's, but the symbolism of this of land. And so in Russia, this idea of being a great power has always been caught up. And that idea of being the, the largest country territory on earth, which is still is, in terms of that vast landmass, all of those lands that you control, that idea of osvayenye in Russian. I don't know what's the same in Ukrainian, but I always thought that was kind of interesting of osvayets, it's kind of making it because the root of the word is foy, right? So it's kind of making it yours. I mean, it's supposed to be conquering and you know absorbing it and assimilating it, osfait, and you you have that whole idea of how you can the osfinini of of, um, of Siberia. Uh, I mean, it's impossible. You can't <laughs> you can't control Siberia. Whereas you know in the United States, there's more of that kind of loose um, affiliation or, or kind of with the with the frontier. You don't try to really conquer it. I mean, at different points, America has done that, but you know now, 
you know, there's a whole different viewpoint on it. Uh, but with, with Russia, it's that how do you conquer it? And, you know, trying to people it deliberately, you know, sending people out, trying to, uh, with, with, with Ukraine, is the idea that the land was, was, was Russia's, you know, and you have to then conquer the people, you know, to bring them back or punish them, all the runaway serfs, or, you know, the, the other people, the, the Cossacks, the, everybody who's trying to get out of the way of the center. And you have to kind of, you know, bring them back in or punish them if they won't be to kind of get the lands back. Or the other uh, idea in Siberia, it's terra nullius. You can't have it empty because somebody else will come and take it. So you have to send, you know, people out there even if they don't want to. In the Soviet period, the whole Raspredlenia, you know, you were sending people out, mm-hmm. you know, as far as you can. And I think that's, that's it. It's not about the resources. It's not about what you're going to do with it you know, the land, how it's going to be productive, how the economy is going to, it's just about this whole idea, the insult, the affront that other people might take the land from you, or that other people might think that they don't belong to you. I mean, Putin, I think now thinks of Ukrainians as traitors, not just enemies, because you refuse to be Russian. And in England, look, and in Britain, it was the same as well. You know, kind of, if you wanted to be Scottish or Irish or Welsh, you know, good luck. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think... You know, so- that actually the way that Putin and his generals are waging the war is actually quite revealing because we need no plants, no factories, actually no people. We just want the land, the territory, even if there is nothing but, you know, shelled territory and poisoned land. So they need territory per se. It's like Potemkin, Russia, when Grigory Potemkin just put up facades of villages. I mean, they didn't really need them. They just wanted to show that they were kind of, they were there sticking a flag. I think it's also telling from Syria. Yes. Uh, Assad is still there and he's presiding over the rubble, you know, what was once a great country and a great civilization, but the rubble that many other conquerors before him have also laid waste to. Because I mean, the history of somewhere like Aleppo and many of the other cities in Syria is, is a history that goes back into antiquity of similar destruction um, of uh, you know the, the cities in the in the region. Think about Iraq and Babylon, and you know we go back into antiquity. We see the same thing, and I'm struck time and time again when I'm reading, you know, things that Patrushev is saying and what Putin is saying. I keep thinking back to antiquity, and I mean, are they any different from all of the other marauding armies that came through? I was reading uh, the other day the history because of all the threats to Moldova about the number of times that the lands that are now Moldova, Bessarabia, were conquered and destroyed over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have also a a little bit a scandalous question. So you're warned. (laughs) All right. I'll have a little drink of water then and prepare myself. (laughs) Okay, please do it. Okay, so. Russia's foreign policy became much more assertive after 2005, when Moscow finally paid off its international debt. And there are some parallels with the erasing of the American deficit in 1999, once dubbed by the New York Times the fiscal equivalent of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So what I'm trying to ask is, a rich Russia nurtures revisionist ideas and shakes the world order. So here's a scandalous question. Would it be sensible to reduce Russia to a state of destitution to ensure regional peace? Yeah, look, I mean, we saw during the um, Yeltsin period what a state of 
um, destitution looked like, and it wasn't great either, right? I mean, there was an awful lot of pressure being put on the neighbours then, I mean, including on Ukraine, and assassinations in Crimea, Crimean Tatars. There was, you know, kind of conflict in Transnistria and Nagorno-Karabakh, and of course it was Chechnya. Because that, you know, um, overriding desire to still control was there. Even though Yeltsin himself said, take as much sovereignty as you want because the state was destitute and solvent, it didn't kind of stop them from being, you know, kind of conflict. Now, however, the, mil the Russian military didn't have the resources to do a much larger war. So one can argue, was it Yeltsin's, like, Gorbachev not really being that kind of person who wanted to launch major wars because in actual fact, Chechnya was a pretty major conflict inside of Russia. And that's on Yeltsin and Pavel Gorachev and others who said that they would, mm -hmm. I think, you know, with Pavel Gorachev thought he was doing in Chechnya what Putin thought he was doing in Ukraine. I mean, he basically said to Yeltsin, I'll be in in 24, 48 hours, I'll be out and that'll be all sold, which it wasn't. But, you know, the Russian military didn't have the wherewithal to do something on a larger scale. So a lot of people would argue that, well, it was because of the insolvency of the state, the destitution of the state, that the Russian military wasn't capable. But, you know, we also know that, you know, countries that feel destitute, North Korea, um, you know, and others can also, you know, still try to marshal resources around being the same you know, to menace their neighbours. So I think, you know, for, for Russian, we don't, we're, Russia's often strong enough still, no matter what, to leverage resources to menace weaker neighbours, just given the size of the state. And, you know, we're still going to have, you know, for a, a period, their ability, unless other countries move away from this, to sell oil and gas and, uh, you know, to neighbours and not in Europe, you know, perhaps over the longer term. But I mean, I, I, when I look back in Russian history, there's been these periods of great weakness, but it hasn't necessarily brought peace if we're thinking of something enduring. And I think, you know, what the risk is, is again, is if we look at Germany from World War One and Two, that you just kind of continue to you know, produce grievances and frustrations that somebody like a Putin can go and feed it, feed in on. So I think, you know, what we would have to be very careful as we try to you know, make sure that Russia doesn't have all of the resources to basically continue with this horrible, devastating war, that we have a longer term strategic thinking about how we bring, you know, Russia back in, in a way, which is what we had to do with Germany after World War II and with Japan, and we've had to do with other countries as well. So I think we have to have a, a short, medium and long term perspective on here. How do we stop the Russians from being able to continue to devastate Ukraine? Have all of these, you know, major global effects. Medium term, how do we get Ukraine reconstructed and, you know, get you back on your feet again? And you know, making sure that Russia, we have guarantees that Russia can't do this again. But over the longer term, what do we do with Russia? I mean, eventually Putin will go. I mean, you know, he might still be there in 2036, you know, as we thought, but he might not be. And you know, there's always kind of some wild card, you know. Um, He's a wild card scenario. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, whatever you're doing an assessment, a projection, it's usually from where you where you're sitting now. And you don't always understand the discontinuities, the things that can happen that can change the course of events. When I was at the National Intelligence Council, we were always doing these long term forecasts and we were always missing things because we were doing a long term 
based on where we are sitting now. And often they can be spectacularly wrong because you've just published them and something happens that you know throws everything, like the, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, we were doing long-term analysis and, and we just got it published. And we said, well, we'd have to go back to it and say, no, it's published now, we have to leave it. Because <laughs> that completely changed the whole geopolitical perspective, um, especially you know leading to the rise of China. And I think changed Putin's idea about how much he thought that the West was worth emulating economically then. That's the time when Putin decides that he just no longer wants Russia to be one of the G7, G8 and going a different direction. And he sees the future being with China and not with the West because the West can't manage the, um, you know, the economy and they completely ruin the global economy. Yeah, yeah. So there, there was another source of emulation for him. Yeah, I, I concur. Uh, I usurped the microphone for much of the time, and some people from the audience they want to ask you something, and I'll just play the role of the their voice. So here's Chris Downs who wonders, uh, who reminds us that you wanted to add something about Shoigu. So is there any information you want to share with us about uh, Shoigu and uh, his role in the war making, uh, maybe war preparation? Yeah, because I mean, I was thinking, first of all, I mentioned that, remember, Shoigu isn't a military guy, actually, although he's been defense minister, he was from the um, Ministry of Emergencies before. So he's not actually a trained military officer. He didn't rise up through the Ministry of Defense. So I think that's significant. And then the other thing is he's been always so close to Putin. Remember, of course, he's not a great Russian either. I mean, his family is mixed, but, you know, he is, um, I think, you know, ultimate Buryat on one side, although, you know, some Russian. So he's always, you know, someone who's a bit of an outsider, you mm -hmm. know, from the kind of periphery. And he's he's courted Putin over time, becoming very close to him. So I don't think as a result of that, he's the kind of person who can push back. And so even, you know, kind of if he had got information from, you know, others down the beneath him in the hierarchy, Given his personal relationship with Putin, it might have stopped him from pushing back if he thought that things were going to be a mistake. And, you know, we see that he disappeared for a while. And then there's reports about his health and his heart. I mean, if I'd been, if I might have had a heart attack as well, because, you know, he obviously wasn't, isn't the person to say no to Putin and to kind of push things in a different direction. And so that's what I kind of say is Putin also getting back to your question, Ivan, right at the very beginning. You know, his decisions are only as good sometimes as just his own information and knowledge and perspectives, but as the people around him, if the people around him are not going to push back on him, as we saw that with Trump, are not going to give him, you know, advice, not bring the information to him, then, um, you know, he can he can make some pretty big mistakes. Now, the only other thing is that Shoigu, like Putin, is somebody who's contingency planner. When you're the Minister of Emergencies, you're dealing with the unexpected emergency. So it often means that he's going to, you know, figure out how to adapt and do something different. So I do think Shoigu is interesting in this context, but it's also interesting that he's now seems to have been slightly pushed to the side for, you know, the general who was in charge of um, Syria and already in Donbass uh, to take the forefront, which doesn't bode well either. I've forgotten his name now. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know who I mean. I mean, he was the person. Yeah, I understand whom we are talking about. Yeah, it's not his name. Yeah. yeah, I knew it five seconds ago, and now I've forgotten it. But anyway, it eludes us sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I, once again, I am on the same page as you are because we see very often in the dictatorships the situation of yes men who actually prefer to conduct and convey only the information 
which is already, um, let's say, harmonized with the view, the framework of the biggest boss in the jungle. So, and uh, those biggest bosses, they prefer to have yes men all down the pyramid. That is precisely, I think, the Putin's system as it functions. Look, I mean, I experienced that with Trump. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous because, you know, you, you, I mean, you all saw um, how we would have these cabinet meetings televised and people would have to go around the table, you know, saying how wonderful it was working for him and how amazing he was. And he just would not let anybody contradict him at all. And if they did, they were sacked. So, you know, everybody at the level I was on and even the level just above me, like the national securities advisors I worked for, they had to really choose very carefully when they would push back. And look, Vice President Pence, I never saw him push back on Trump until the very end on January 6th, when I was very grateful that he did. But when I ever sat in meetings where he was there, he never pushed back. And And I kind of imagined from that, you know, I can imagine those sort of scenarios in the Kremlin as well. Well, I mean, he does have people who, you know, is close to what I observed where they were a bit like a band of brothers, um, you know, more informal people with Lavrov and, you know, others. But, you know, because they've been together for such a long time. But at the same time, they're not going to tell him anything he doesn't really want to hear. And maybe they think the same way, like Patrushev, I saw him a lot. He has a very, very dark view of Mm -hmm. the United States and the West. I think he believes every single thing he says. Well, doesn't Patrushev hail from the same uh, military security? Exactly, as most of them do, exactly. Yeah, so they nurture that uh, hmm, dark beliefs about others' intentions. If you do something good, it is for your own benefit. For your own benefit, it's not because of altruism. And I mean, I think that that's it. They don't understand that a lot of people, they obviously don't understand the psychology of altruism. That, you know, yes, it's true that some people feel good by an altruistic act, but it's ultimately it might be at their expense. Yeah. And it's only the altruistic act only has a you know, benefit for them and their own feelings, not for, you know, you think of somebody who gives somebody else a kidney, they'll feel good about it, but it's not really <laughs> to their benefit. You know, yeah. if you see what I mean, I mean, it's like a, and but Putin would never understand anything like that. Yeah. Well, I have another one question. The last one, I think, if you have time to, to yes, try to. Yes, of course I do. Yes. And it's oh. really wonderful being with all of you today. I mean, I'm very honored that you would ask me and, you know, I'd love to help you, you know, get other speakers. And maybe when all of this is over, um, we can all get together in person. Hopefully, hopefully somewhere in a peaceful queue. <laughs> yes, I know. That would be wonderful. Yeah. So the, the last question. Let's go back to Putin. One of his preferable and most well-practiced tricks was to promote an image of a well-calculated risk taker. Uh, For me, he's like, you know, an ultimate poker player. Uh, When he talked to Macron, Merkel, Obama and others, he looked always like he knew he was aware of other people's cards and was calculating his remaining options. And last question is, what about now? Has the disastrous debut of the war with Ukraine put him on, on balance, off balance? So well, I think it has, but I think he ultimately thinks that we're going to be off balance. So this is where it really matters very much of all of us sticking together. Because I think he's looking out there, he looks at the 2022 midterms, this year's midterms in America, 
Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, yeah, Macron won in France, but not sufficiently from my view. I think it's kind of narrow win because turnout was low and um, Marine Le Pen actually increased her share from the time before. Germany, the coalition government obviously is all over the place. I mean, they're trying very hard to get it together. And I think there was, you know, there's a lot of promising steps there, but we're all feeling that Germany's not going far enough. And Putin knows that, I mean, it's not really quite so much poker, but he has somebody, other people's cards. I mean, the Germans were stupid, you know, right from the very beginning to become dependent on Russian gas, Soviet gas. I mean, everybody told them that all the way along. I mean, look, I always thought, honestly, that Ukraine should have got rid of Russian gas as well. Yes. You shouldn't have been dependent on transit. And I was always saying that and getting pushed back on because you don't want to give anybody any hold over you whatsoever, particularly on your economy. I mean, Ukraine should have you know, moved off that as well. I mean, you've had to now because it's because of war. But Germany, you know, there was Nord Stream 1. We, we went and you know, pushed back against it, not just Nord Stream 2, but even in the Soviet period. They shouldn't have had the pipelines. So now they've created a huge problem for themselves. And Putin was confident. I mean, he was telling people that they won't move away from our oil and gas. So I think he's very surprised and off balance, but they can't do it that quickly, which is why he's playing with that. And he moved now because Russia had the maximum position in the um, European energy sphere, along with all the other reasons why he moved. And I still think that he thinks that um, others will buy oil China will continue to buy gas and maybe they can expand that at a, at a premium and that he can, you know, basically gain some other cards, you know, to keep playing in the game or that people may not play their cards well. You know, we'll have domestic demo, uh, domestic political problems. And, you know, UK right now, everyone's worrying about the price of petrol, pretty high, food prices, but that's because of what Putin's doing. And look, the, the, the thing is we have to tell people is, if he gets Ukraine, it doesn't mean that food prices are going to change because he's destroyed Ukraine's agricultural base. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been making the analogy from the Bible of Putin being the four horsemen of the apocalypse himself. I mean, he's conquest by moving into war, by moving into Ukraine. Pestilence, I mean, he didn't really start pestilence, but it's exacerbating the problem. Yeah. Famine and death. And the famine is a result of what he's done. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, if he takes all of the ports, Melitopol, Mariupol, Bidyansk, I mean, these are all the ports where grain came out. Their largest um, exports of grain were not just coming from Odessa, but out of the Sea of Azov, including from Russian ports. And he's destabilizing the entire region, targeting shipping. And then in Ukraine, you can't even plant. You can't plant if you've got landmines all over um, your fields or if your tractors have had to be turned into tanks or are pulling tanks off the and then if all the farmers are being killed and their livestock um, is also being killed as well. So the food security issue, sunflowers and Ukraine being the largest exporter of sunflower. I actually didn't know it was Ukraine until I thought it must be, you know, Spain or somewhere like that, but apparently not. In, in Spain, there's a shortage of sunflowers because of um, of Ukraine as sort of sunflower oil. So Ukraine has to explain this issue as well. So, I mean, I think that this is an enormous set of problems. It's just this whole dimension of um, the, the nature of the war and the conflict and what Russia's done and trying to explain this uh, to the rest of the world as well is really important about, you know, kind of the devastation that is being produced by Ukraine being taken out of the global economy because of the war. 
and that even when the war ends that won't be reversed because it'll take a lot of time for ukraine to to recover and, you know, somewhere like Odessa, Odessa in 1900 was the fastest growing city in Europe because of the Black Sea grain trade. Yeah. Well, I, I really loved your tragic analogy with Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Yeah, it's not uh, to love, is it? But it's kind of apt, you know, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciate the way you are putting it. I mean, the words you are expressing it that actually it is a global problem. And we have to explain explain it to everyone who cares to listen. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to explain to people this whole idea about World War Three. are getting a lot of pushback, so we're already in it. Because Putin is saying this is, in a way, a hundred years war because he's complaining about the creation of Ukraine as the, you know, Ukrainian socialist republic during the Soviet period back in the 1920s. At the, I mean, the end, we've got a hundred years since the end of the Russian uh, civil war right now. Yeah. So he's, he's given us a hundred years war, and we know that Germany fought World War Two over the outcome of World War One, and Putin is basically saying that he's now fighting a war because of the outcomes of World War One, World War Two, and the Cold War, and it's the global dimensions, the fact that China aided and abetted um, Putin in this, the global knock-on effect of it, the fact that other countries are now making calculations because of this war in the way that they weren't for a war in Yemen or even of Afghanistan or in Iraq. Ukraine is having shockwaves um, around the world. And I think we have to explain that it already is a global war. Well, I, I do agree with your reading, actually. We understand it, I mean, these colors. Now it is our task to explain it to the policymakers. And you are in a much better position than I am to do it. I'm, I'm trying, but you have to do it as well, Ivan. I mean, you and everybody else on this. I mean, this is, you have to explain it too, because I think there's a big problem also with, um, you know, some of the other countries watching this. They see what the United States did in 2003 in Iraq. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, subsequent to that, you know, the United States doesn't have a good track record. The United Kingdom certainly doesn't either with the, the you know, the, the imperial wars and many of the things that were done too. Ukraine has always been a colony. Ukraine has not been an aggressor. And you need to get out to the rest of the world with countries like yourselves to explain what's happening. And that basically Ukraine is being predated upon in the same way that many other global countries were as well. You know, those in the UN who have basically sat back and watched this, or said, look, this has got nothing to do with us. This is NATO, this is a proxy war. It's not. I mean, this is the kind of war that will have global consequences and will basically inspire other conflicts as a result of it. And the problem is that actually the uh, non-aligned countries like India or like Latin America countries, they actually are much more pro-Russian than pro-Ukrainian. India is a case in study, but yeah. actually we have, we have problems in, Africa, where countries as different as Somalia and Angola, they actually they espouse the Russian interpretation you need of the to remind them that you know relief in terms of food aid was coming from Ukraine. Most of the relief pirates that are pilots that I ever encountered were Ukrainian with heavy lift. I mean, you know, the Antonov and other um, uh, planes, and also Ukraine's um, universities remained open, as we know. Uh, to students from around the so-called global south, particularly Kharkiv, and all of this is being destroyed. I mean, if, if I were Ukrainian leaders, I'd be trying to send envoys to Mexico, Brazil, uh, you know, Angola, Mozambique, 
Um, I mean, Russia is not the leader of the liberation movement. It never was in the Soviet period. It certainly isn't now. And oh, I mean, yeah. and you have to push back, but you can't push back with the United States and the UK. And France, you know, doesn't go down well in the Middle East or Africa either. Germany, eh, you know, not so much. I would get Finland and Sweden and... I mean, Sweden's empire never extended to Africa. <laughs> you were part of it at one point, but I would think very carefully about countries that you can link up with to make this case. So there is, this is a new direction for the cultural diplomacy. Yes, because I think Ukraine be... has to tell the story. Ireland can help you. you know, actually, Irish people are very sympathetic for the Ukrainian situation. For those whom I know, they really see the parallels between their great famine and ours great famine, uh, yeah. their maltreatment by the British overlord and... Yeah, India, should see the, India should see the same thing. They should see the same thing. I mean, this would be like if Britain decided to reinvade India or Britain tried to take Ireland. And sort of if the United States wanted to take Canada because Canadians are being, you know, oppressed by French speakers, you know, or something like this. Or, you know, going into Mexico because of Spanish speakers, basically. But look, Mexico fought wars of um, liberation. Well, yeah. I mean, the Soviet Union and Russia were never, I mean, they were always exploiting this. And Ukraine's got to turn this around by engaging directly. And you've got old ties and links with people too, because I mean, the Soviet period, a lot of the um, the officials and others who were out there were actually Ukrainian anyway, just like Irish and Scots during the British Empire. But with Africa, there is an additional layer of problems and issues is China. China's influence is yeah. Well, that's huge. why have, that's why you have to talk to China as well and say, look, this is what happened to you. Yeah. And we never did anything to you. Why are you doing this to us? Or letting this happen to us? Well, those are sensible ideas. It's just we hard to do, but them. I think you have to do that. I mean, you have to, you can reach out to students from other places by, you know, kind of reconnecting with all the students from different places who have studied in Kiev and Kharkiv and Lviv and other places. Lviv. Oh, yes. In Ukraine and it is Lviv. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Lviv. I was kind of, I was always, that was one of the places in history. I was like, oh, this place had so many names. Lemberg, Lviv, Lvov. <laughs> Lvov in Polish, yes. Exactly, exactly. And you're kind of, is it the same place? <laughs> when I was first learning in a history, I'd look at maps and go, hang on, where's this? <laughs> but oh, I come you from Dublin. Yeah, well, look, I'm from the borderlands as well. And, you know, my region, you know, has been under the Danes. It was Dane law. You know, it's been under the Scots at different points. It's been autonomous and completely independent. You know, it's been under the Romans. I'm the last outpost of the Roman Empire. <laughs> so we, we know we know what it's like. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you shared wealth of information with us today. It was really, you know, interesting, both from the scholarly point of view and emotional one. You I read your books. Now I know you personally. It was it was really a pleasure to see you, to hear you. So thank you for coming. It was no, really an interesting. Let, let me let me help you in it whatever way I can as well. So please keep in touch. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So stay yeah, safe. Thank you everyone. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. All the very best. Be safe, please. Thank you. Keep safe.